Uh, first of all, I would like to thank the organizers of this seminar, Professor O'Hanlon and uh, Professor Bandare, and also for giving me an opportunity to share my research from ongoing work that I'm doing, and also listen to this wonderful presentations from yesterday, which are very educative and very insightful. So I want this is a dual thanks that I want to uh, give the organizers and I will go without I think uh, much ado. I will straight away go on to my presentation that I'm making. Yeah, uh, so what I'm going to talk about today is uh, unlike other presentations that we had uh, during the seminar, which were looking at a specific kind of uh, case maybe. Uh, my presentation is more about uh, a kind of broader arguments that I'm developing as part of the book that I'm working on titled A Critical History of Marathi Literature. Uh, the book is not a history of uh, Marathi literature. It is more of a kind of critical examination of existing literary historiographies in Marathi as well as in English, especially by South Asianists. And uh, I'm going to I just pull together a lot of uh, uh, references uh, which can be useful as a kind of it. So I aim to make it a kind of portal for further research on the subject. And I'm also aiming to come up with a kind of reconstruction of uh, Marathi literary historiography. And uh, the two uh, governing ideas that uh, drive my project are actually not uh, very uh, new or novel. Uh, the first idea that I'm, uh, which is my core assumption, is that the object of literary historiography is not authors' texts or even periods or uh, a particular school, but more like a literary policy scheme. So, for that, I have drawn upon the notion of policy scheme theory, which I will just touch upon very briefly uh, as a part of this uh, presentation. And second, Related to this is the idea that no literary policy scheme as a complex of cultural system within which uh, texts are produced and consumed uh, ever develops in historical isolation from other policy systems. And hence there is a kind of dialogic relationship with transcultural, transregional spaces of various kinds as well as there are multilingualities within something that uh, Anjali talked about. And uh, this dialogic relationship has a kind of regional coordinate and that reminded me of the presentation we had yesterday on Chan Bibi, where we are looking at the uh, tropes of gender heroism in which has a kind of Deccan coordinate to it. So there is a kind of dialogic relationship with trans-regional cultural spaces of all kinds uh, that those spaces may be the, the Sanskrit cosmopolis as famously uh, theorized by Sheldon Pollock, uh, the Persian cosmopolis as Richard Eaton calls it. You may use the term the Hindustani cosmopolis for lack of better word for kind of phenomena that Anjali has just mentioned. And in my book, I have also touched upon the Bangla cosmopolis and idea and these all transregionalities with which the regional interacts is critical to understanding of uh, historical development of Marathi uh, literary policy scheme. And as we can see that we are going beyond the conventional east-west kind of uh, uh, dichotomy that, that is very often found in uh, 
uh, formulations uh, of uh, Marathi literary history. And for that, I have drawn upon certain models of world literature. And <coughs> uh, I will talk about that. So, but before touching upon the idea of uh, world literature, I will just uh, touch upon uh, what I mean by literary policy scheme here. And Itamar Ivan Zohar provides a way of model of literary system by borrowing Roman Jakobson's very famous schema of communication. And this is the kind of uh, schematic that he gives here as a, uh, any interaction between the writer and the reader or the composer and audience has these various uh, complex dimensions to it. The institutional contextual dimension, the repertoire or code, but more specifically, we can say that he's talking about what is poetics. Then there are aspects of market and media which are related to contact and channel, as Jakobsen is saying, and the product, of course, the text. Uh, what I have done that I have tried to argue that some of the primary in institutional contexts of Marathi literary policy scheme uh, in pre-colonial period are essentially sampradayas, Panth and their ideologies of various kinds and uh, the whole question of indirect patronage or differentiated patronage, a term that is used by Andre Lefebvre in his discussion of uh, translation as refraction, something which I rely upon extensively, uh, an idea which is not explored fully by Sheldon Pollock because I think the whole question of patronage uh, in Pollock or others seems to be a kind of relation between the king who gives money to the or some financial support to the poet. That kind of court model of patronage is something that uh, uh, seems to be a kind of assumptions that underlie these kind of histories. Uh, I have argued that there can be multiple kinds of patronage which are not directly uh, more working but more indirect kind of patronage. And Lefebvre has, of course, talked about things like status and commercial aspects and and uh, reputation uh, and ideology of uh, the patronage. Uh, the other uh, aspect of policy system is poetics, where I look at various genres like uh, Abhanga, Ovi, Bakar, Puwada, Launi, and so on and so forth. Tika, for example, uh, or uh, the retelling of the epics in Marathi, for example. Then languages and the processes of hybridization that are at work, uh, which is an important context of any literary policy scheme. And, in, and I have also tried to focus upon the question of media. And I have used the idea of media ecology instead of media, which emphasizes that no medium exists in isolation but always in relation to other media. So the pre-colonial Marathi literary policy scheme can be termed as oral literate or oral performative, as uh, uh, some scholars have pointed out, written and manuscript traditions and the questions of public that publics that Novitsky has also uh, discussed at length. So that's about policy scheme. Uh, then I come to the idea of world literature, and that is a kind of uh, thorny issue uh, as my experience shows in many of the seminars that I have attended that there is a tendency to look at world literature as a kind of a byproduct of capitalism or your European world system theory as 
uh, Franco Moretti and uh, many others have talked about. Uh, and there are other formulations of world literature as well, which uh, I found quite useful for my own purpose. And uh, though many contemporary formulations of world literature, like the one by famously by Pascal Casanova or Moretti or Damroche, are critiqued for the implication uh, of the notion with the capitalist neoliberal Eurocentricism. I have argued that these the notion of world literature itself is not singular. And there are certain formulations and models of world literature, like the ones by Dionys Durizin, a uh, uh, famous Czech scholar, and David Damrosch can be fruitfully used in literary and cultural historiography in South Asia, as they can provide a model for underscoring multiple dialogic processes uh, and textual circulations in wide multilingual and diverse cultural contexts. Uh, they can also help us to move beyond uh, the post-colonial nationalist nativist approaches that you very often find in Marathi literary historiography on the one hand, as well as uh, uh, more Sanskrit centric approaches to the question, which are very often based on the idea of vernacularization as famously uh, proposed by uh, Sheldon Pollock. Uh, I'm not going to read this. I'm just going to talk about it very quickly. Uh, Damrosch idea of world literature is extremely broad. He talk about uh, those literary works as well as the modes of reading those works uh, which circulate beyond their culture of origin, either in translation or in original languages. And uh, instead of looking at world literature as a kind of canon of works, he is focusing on modes of circulation, which he calls as world literature. So it seems that his emphasis seems to move away from world literature as a product to more like world literature as a process. That's what my understanding is. And uh, recently he has also emphasized that world literature is almost always experienced by readers within the national context in which they live. So and he uh, goes on to uh, propose a kind of uh, reversal of figure ground that it's the nation that frames most of the experiences of world literature. Uh, at least as much as it's world literature that frames national canon. Uh, this kind of formulation allows us to see texts like Bhagavad Gita, the epics, the Bhakti poets like Kabir or Tagore, or genres like Ghazal or novels as world literature, but also allows us to understand the genres of reading like literary criticism and literary history as well as a form of world literature, because literary history after all is a mode of reading literature. Uh, so how does these two ideas of world literature and uh, policy steam connect to the question of vernacularization? And uh, the notion of world literature and the notion of vernacularization elaborated by Sheldon Pollock uh, as models of how transregional spaces, the world or Margia or cosmopolitan, engages with the local, desi, regional, or the national seem to continue within the problematic top down framework of Sanskrit centric or Eurocentric influence studies. And uh, Pollock has used the terms like vernacularization implies a kind of uh, how Sanskrit models become deterministic. They determine and they are uh, uh, superimposed on the uh, 
vernacular models. And uh, in my book, I have shown that how uh, the tradition of Tika, especially the kind of uh, we find in Marathi in Dhyaneshwari, is not a kind of uh, replication of Sanskrit Tika tradition, but it's a performative uh, genre, uh, almost a theater which relies extensively upon the folk uh, uh, into inverted commas, that is folk into inverted commas as uh, and it has a kind of interliterary uh, genre that uh, a new model, a new model of textual model is generated by uh, Nyaneshwar in 13th century. Uh, so uh, my argument is that uh, instead of looking at the relation between trans-regional hegemonic, if you want to use that term, spaces with the regional, we have to go beyond this uh, top-down model and the emphasis should be on dialogism between uh, the regional and the trans-regional one. Uh, so we can understand in such, such a situation how individual South Asian vernacular literary history culture and cultures like Marathi interacted dialogically not only with larger trans-regional cultural spaces like Sanskrit cosmopolis, but also the Persian cosmopolis, something that I will just touch upon given the kind of time that we have on our hand. Uh, uh, Dionysus Durizin is one of the underread and probably marginalized figure in conception of world literature today. And uh, it has something to do with his location in the, what is called Eastern Europe on the margins of Europe. Uh, but the space that he inhabits, the multilingualities of those spaces has enabled him to come up with very uh, insightful and useful tool uh, to approach these questions that we are dealing with, especially when we are looking at this whole top down model, which he calls the vulgarization and one sidedness implicit in the idea of influence or causality as in the approaches such as Sheldon Pollock's or Walter Cohen's history of European literature. Uh, they do not take into account or they neglect what Durizin terms as the factors of autonomous individuality of those literary cultures or the principle of selectivity and agency active in the recipient culture. So Durizin's model of world literature is a dynamic and evolving construct rather than a static canonical one, which is a historical kind of construct uh, which is ever changing with history. Uh, though Durizin belonged to the period of the Soviet uh, 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 Union where kind of in order to probably official Marxist line, you rely upon certain Hegelianism of teleology which he seems to be following, but I have been, I have not, uh, I have selectively used Durizin critically. Uh, and not schematically, but more as heuristic tool. Uh, so that's my argument that it's, it's more constructive framework as compared to Eurocentric models like Moretti's or uh, Sanskrit-centric neo-orientalist approaches such as Pollock's. So apart from this uh, uh, very useful uh, opening up, of the question of uh, agency of the receiving cultures and uh, principle of selectivity to use his term. 
it it's also useful because it does away with the customary reactionary nativist and nationalist accusations of derivativeness against the presence of the role of foreign non native elements in tradition so he uses the term interliterary uh, and his emphasis on the process interliterary process which makes uh, his framework extremely useful for literary historiography the kind of uh, uh, historiography i am trying to uh, propose in my work so it overcomes the typical post colonial binaristic paradigm of literary studies where one is stuck either with cosmopolitan eurocentric or sanskrit centric approach or with reactionary nativist nationalist approach uh, and uh, 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 how that nativist nationalist bias is seen in literary historiography is one of the important uh, analysis that i am doing throughout my work so the history of marathi literature does not remain merely a variety of national or subnational narrative but emerges as a figure against the background of larger world literary processes and at the same time it enables us to see the world in a grain of sand as dambrosch says alluding to blake so this is my model of marathi literary history so world literature in this durisinian sense uh can be understood as a historically unfolding interliterary processes where sanskrit upabranch bhashas uh in 12th and 13th century can be seen as the earliest phase followed by the persian arabic hindustani and uh, also portuguese something uh, that has remained marginal to marathi literary history but at the same time very important one and the media was obviously oral literate culture that krishnan uh, 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 novisky has so uh, insightfully described then when we come to the 19th century the english marathi interliterary processes become a new phase of uh, world literature in marathi and the chief media ad of this stage was print technology and when we come to the post 90s period with the emergence of internet as a global tool of immense power we believe that we are in the beginning of the next stage the post print phase of world literature and conceptualizing world literature and its relation to individual policy system as a historical process that precedes and exceeds the print centric eurocentric conceptual of conceptual uh, of world literature will help us to complicate uh the idea of world literature itself so i am trying to appropriate and recast for my own purposes the idea of world literature here uh so when we come uh to the 14th and 17th century uh what have nationalist and nativist uh, literary critics or historians how have they seen this period and uh this phase from 14th century to early 17th century from uh, probable death of namdev in 1350s to uh, the emergence of uh, tukaram in 17th century and chhatrapati shivaji in 17th century this phase is described as asmani sultani period and the title is this phase is given to uh, is the title of the poem attributed to samarth ramdas who describes the invasion by the muslims as catastrophes from the skies uh, and the natural disasters like famine that accompany probably uh, 
the phase of Kali Yuga that he is describing. Such titles indicate the influence of Brahminical Ramdasi Sampradaya on later historical reading of this period. So according to many leading historians like Tulpule, this period of two centuries is Tamo Yuga, the age of darkness, a dark night that would go on for too long, not because of Marathi invasion, that's what he says, but because of cultural decadence in which Marathi lost its authentic character. And the same narrative is continued by Paran's Pay and Miraskar's Marathi literary outline. And even nativist critics like uh, Bhalchandra Nemade would say in his book on Tukaram that this was uh, Bhakti was a part of Maharashtrian assertion of independence against Muslim invaders, a part of Indian reformation which began with the loss of political freedom. And he would go on to say that the fanatical Muslim powers had reduced the Hindu po population to social importance. And he calls it barren period, uh, excepting one major poet, Eknath. Uh, so the problem in Marathi literary historiography is connected to the larger historiographical problem that Brajdural uh, Chattopadhyay has uh, talked about the typical schematic division of pre-British Indian history into Hindu and Muslim periods, where uh, uh, both the Hindu versus Muslim binary, and they are seen as a kind of homogeneous kind of constructs, uh, ahistorical constructs. Some, and I'm, uh, I have tried to complicate this narrative, uh, focusing on the policy system of Marathi literary history uh, and in my own uh, uh, project instead of uh, slotting them all all the the period entire period as islamic period uh, i have tried to show the dynamic nature and differential nature of various kinds of regime for lack of better word call them islamic though i'm not very happy with the term islamic being attributed to such regimes in first place uh, and the uh, even we have formulations by Robert Wall, who has argued that Islamic world can be considered as a special pre-modern world system, which is, uh, and if you consider Islamic world as a pre-modern world system, then you are complicating the Eurocentric nod, uh, notion of world system, on which the idea of world literature, uh, as formulated by Moretti and uh, Casanova, seems to be based upon. I'm just uh, uh, skipping many things. Uh, so this period in my uh, analysis is not blank or dark. We see an emergence of new sampradayas like the Tatraya Sampradaya, Anand Sampradaya, Nagesh, and their literatures, as well as emergence of Jaina and Muslim Marathi Santas, which is uh, uh, very important, as well as, as Dakhani literatures uh, by Sufis. I think uh, Anjali mentioned the uh, uh, Pushkar Sony's uh, writing on the topic. So uh, how does this framework help us to look at uh, some of the important texts of this period and some of the important writers of this uh, so-called blank period or uh, uh, period of decadence uh, is obviously the poet uh, Shah Muntoji, Mudbaji Bahamani or Murtyunjai. And I have relied largely upon writings of Rachi Dhere. Uh, and uh, I have uh, uh, taken Dhere's 
uh, writings at face value because I am not actually trained to examine historicity of the documents or texts that he talks about. Uh, but some of the books are extremely fascinating apart from Siddha Sanket Prabandha, which is a form of Anuvada of Padma Puran. And his uh, books are Advaita Prakash and Prakash Deep, uh, Swarup Samadhan, Amrutanubhav and, and uh, more interestingly is the book called the Panchikarana, which obviously talks about uh, the Advaitic notion of five elements being uh, produced. Uh, uh, he, uh, he is a kind of glossary of Marathi and Sanskrit spiritual terms translated into what he calls as Avindya or Muslim language. Uh, for uh, so there are terms like uh, and he's kind of creating a glossary where on one side you have Sanskrit terms probably for the technical terms from Nagesh Sampradaya or a, uh, where and he's probably this book is written in response to Adnyan Siddha, uh, the founder and uh, the text says that Om Ram is equivalent to Bismillah or Sthuladeha is glossed as Vajbul Vajud or Lingadeha is translated as uh, Mamatal Vajud and so on and so forth. And a note in the Panchikarana says Shah Mudbaji Brahmani Jinme Nahi Manmani Panchikarana ka khoj kiye Hindu Musliman ek kiye. Uh, obviously the historicity of this text is very clear but uh, if we assume that these texts are from the period that is being discussed and this is an open question. It tells us something about the period, uh, which is very often seen by the nationalist historians in Hindu versus Muslim terms, which is extremely reductive. Uh, and we have some more examples like Sheikh Muhammad's Yoga Sangram. Uh, and a very interesting text similar to Panchikaran is Ducheshma or Pair of Eyes uh, by Sheikh Muhammad. And uh, it means pair of eyes and uh, two eyes are two probably to sampradayas, probably uh, the Muslims were seen as a sampradaya. Uh, that's more likely, that's an assumption that I'm making. I'm not very sure. Rather than as a kind of a political uh, identitarian construct that is largely 19th century, uh, it seems to consolidate in 19th century. So these kind of encounters uh, between uh, Marathi and Marathi Bhakti traditions and uh, Sheikh Muhammad's Bhakti traditions and Muslim and Sufis and uh, uh, YM Pathan uses the term Musalman Sufi but again as I think it is Dushan who has pointed out how the term Sufi is problematic. Uh, it's not very clear but the terminology of Panchikaran and Chashma is definitely underscored by sectarian in not in the Christian sense of the word sectarian but sampradaya or panth kind of uh, context because uh, it's Ananda sampradaya has got its own uh, metaphysical outlook for which uh, a parallel or equivalence is being given by uh, the translator if you want to use that term. Uh, then there is obviously very famous uh, example of Hindu Turk Samwad and I'm not going into detail for this but it uh, it's attributed to Eknath uh, and uh, it's a kind of dialogic com compositions uh, where a Brahmin priest and a Turk holy man begin by flinging all sorts of charges against each other 
and uh, uh, by the end of uh, the whole composition uh, they reach a conclusion uh, that khuda ko jaat nahi god has no caste and uh, which suggests a kind of uh, uh, shared grounds of dialogue which were available and uh, each maybe sect or sampraday maybe uh, had a space where there was a kind of encounter uh, and uh, a dialogue rather than simple conflict between hindus and muslims as was proposed by nationalist historians of marathi literature uh such in such in last one or two minutes i'm Thank coming you. to the end of it this is the last point that and these translational encounter these dialogic encounters they uh, i referred to an essay by tony k stewart uh, in his uh, uh, where he talks about how the term syncretism is not a uh, uh, very useful term because of some certain assumptions that are existing uh in the term as if there are two finished religious systems historically static out of which a third product is made by a distortion so instead of that he proposes that uh, such kind of encounter should be seen as dialogism translational models or refraction again using lefevre's word or dynamic equivalence so these are the terms that he has suggested so these are the pre colonial models of translation uh, which need to be explored uh, in their historical context to and uh, what we can see here that it's not a simple kind of adoption of any trans regional model uh, simple derivation from those models whether they are sanskrit or whether they are persian but a kind of inventions of newer genres in vernacular which are interliterary and very often in a very different context uh, and this process is largely in the context of uh, sampradayas and panth that we should be approaching it so uh, thus by conceptualizing these histories of cross lingual cross regional cross religious dialogic interactions uh, we can come up with post nationalist post nativist non eurocentric non essentialist model of literary and cu cultural historiographies of south asia is what i'm attempting to work out and what i'm suggesting here so with this i want to end my presentation and i want to thank once again the organizers and i would be very happy to have your inputs so that i can uh, uh, maybe tweak and rework and modify some of the work that i'm doing in the ongoing project so thank well, you for that Thanks very much indeed, uh, Sachin. That's a, um, a really challenging, wide-ranging um, uh, set of questions for us and proposals. So um, let me throw it open now to um, uh, to our audiences to um, uh, put in their questions through Q and A, um, if you would. Um, so whilst you will uh, give give uh, 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 Sachin a, a minute or two to gather his breath whilst you're um, sending in your questions. Um, Pauline. Yeah. Uh, there are a couple of questions already in the live Q and A. See, I I find it very hard to see where these questions are. Mm -hmm. Do you want me to read them out? 
So I is it as in that? No, I see now. Yes, sorry, I see now. Um, uh, so here we are. Um, a very good question from Amol Bunker. Where can one place Mahanubhav literature in your model? Yeah. Yeah, actually, Mahanubhav is a very important sampradaya, and uh, in some way, it's a very interesting contrast to the Varkari sampradaya. And I have relied upon uh, the examination which sees makes a distinction between closed sampradayas, uh, very rare, uh, like the Mahanubhavas, and more open sampradayas. Uh, and this classification is done by Mancharkar. And uh, he has examined how literary works of uh, uh, these from this sectarian spaces are shaped by the ideologies. Uh, for example, Mahanubha would be largely Dvaitvadi. So their treatment of Rukmini Swamvar would be very different from the Varkari treatment of the same topic, which is based, which uses the trope for Advaita, for instance. So just so it fits into the a frame of policy system given that institutional contexts are largely uh, sampradayas and puns, and we need to have a better conceptualization of these sampradayas rather than just merely calling them uh, sects. Because so, and uh, in my project, I have examined how the dynamics of these sampradayas change, how Mahanuba sampraday undergoes a kind of fragmentation after 14th century onwards and arise the invention of new scripts. Uh, so I have examined that in my work as well. So. Uh, thanks, uh, Sachin. Um, a question here from Christian. Thank you for this wonderful and provocative paper, Sachin. I'm interested to hear you say more about your project in relation to the construction of a Marathi cosmopolis. Okay. Um, if a cosmopolis is the product of discussion about its own nature and scope, as in the Sanskrit cosmopolis, how do you think of the role of your project in actually producing a Marathi cosmopolis? Um, That's a very interesting question because most of my project has focused upon Marathi as in relation to other kinds of cosmopolis. But now when you ask about it, I, I have touched upon uh, the multi-centrality of Marathi cultural space. For example, I've looked at Tanjavur uh, as a space which produced important theatre. Uh, and I also looked at Baroda, which is a very important site outside what is understood as modern, modern Maharashtra. So there were spaces, there are spaces like Indore or Tanjavur uh, or Baroda, which are outside uh, the modern uh, map of Maharashtra, which can be considered as Marathi cosmopolis, but I haven't used that term. But I want to thank you for that very useful way of conceptualizing this polycent uh, polycentric space of Marathi literature. So I will use that term. So thanks, Christian, for again providing a very useful insight to us, as you have always done in your books. <laughs> I don't know if I have been able to. Other questions now? Yeah. Um, yes, Polly, there are a couple of uh, questions from Anfield House. And, uh, uh, there is one by Kedar. Yeah. Um, um, can you read them, please? Um, yeah. He says that, thank you for your paper. Have you considered the kind of models 
that someone like Alexander Beecroft uses for world literature, calling for ecologies rather than economies, in a critique of Dambrush, Casanova, and others, uh, or for example, uh, Michael Allen's work on Egypt's world. It's, no, I haven't seen that. I will definitely thanks for that useful suggestions. I will definitely look up these uh, ideas, but I have looked at some uh, something called ecology of sampradayas. So uh, various punts have a kind of ecologies which are uh, shifting and dynamic, which, without which you can, cannot understand the history of Marathi literature. And very often I'm left asking a question whether such kind of sampradayas exist today. For example, Mardekar Sampraday. In fact, the modern use of the word sampraday uh, alludes to Mardekar Sampraday and uh, 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 Ravi Kiran Manda as Sampradaya. So are these modern recasting of that? So is a question that I'm asking, but I will look up Beecroft's uh, uh, work. Thanks, thanks for the suggestion. Um, then there's a couple more. Can you see them from Madhuri? Can yeah. you elaborate? Uh, yeah, there is one by Amul Banker. And Satish and Anfeldhaus as well. Yeah. Oh, okay. I don't see that one. Um, if you can see it, um, Sachin, could you? Yeah. I I have, I have tried to respond to uh, uh, Feldhaus's question and question, and I think it's being repeated in Amol Banker's question on Mahanubhava because Mahanubhava is a very and what right. Manchester calls Bandha Sampradaya uh, mm. against Varkari as a Khula Sampradaya is a is the idea that I have followed and how it has changed. Okay, there is Madhuri. He was asking, can you elaborate on your characterization of Pollock as neo-orientalist? Sanskrit-centric uh, view of uh, maybe literary cultures on the subcontinent can be considered as neo-orientalist, uh, for lack of better word. Uh, again, uh, I think the problem with Pollock's model is excessive reliance on the Kannada. And uh, I find that uh, even Marathi and Gujarati would be so different. Uh, the way trans regionalities are negotiated with regional uh, is uh, it changes with probably each uh, literary culture. So to come up with a singular model is a problem, Sanskrit centric, uh, where uh, the Deshi is seen as a receiving kind of passive receiver of Sanskrit, which was never ever the case. For example, Mahanubhava prose, there is nothing like it in Sanskrit. How can you consider Lila Charitra as a derivative genre at all? So it's very uh, Sanskrit centric view. If I'm, uh, that's my response to Madhuri. Then Rachel Sturman says, I was wondering if a spatial model of worlds was integral to the visions you are describing. Uh, yes, but at the same time, what needs to be done? And I don't think I have space to do it in the current project is to look at how the idea of world. For example, in Gyaneshwari, there is the whole notion of Vishwatmake Deve and Vishwa is a very important idea even in Tukaram onwards. So I think that would be a very interesting way of looking at it. Again, following Pollock, you can use the terms inside out uh, view of uh, uh, world literature, if that is possible. But the, given the constraint of space in my own project, I don't think I would be able to explore that. But thanks for that suggestion. Um, and then this interesting, interesting question from Christian yeah. Sachin. If, if we were in person, I'd now turn to Anne Feldhaus and ask 
if she'd reflect on how the Leela Charitra registers diverse literary ecologies in relation to some of your ideas. Of course, most unfortunately, we're not in person. I don't know, Anne, whether you'd like to send in, um, whether you'd like to confirm that this is something you'd like to reflect on. Um, yes, I remember Professor Feldau sending me some lines from Leela Charitra, which he thought was old Gujarati because uh, the Sri Chakradhar was from the region now called Gujarat. And uh, whenever the king probably used to come, I think it's uh, Nagdev or I'm not sure who uses Gujarati to hide certain things. That's what uh, she had sent me. So there is a kind of multilinguality within the so-called Marathi that uh, needs to be. And I think we can look at it as world literature where I have looked at uh, Hindustani compositions attributed to Namdev and all, all important Sant poets right up to uh, Ramdas and Tukaram. So that itself is a kind of uh, uh, sign of multilingualities within as even Anjali was saying. So probably I don't know how it. Yes, yes, that's what Shailendra is saying. Yeah. Um. So I'm pu I'm publishing some more that are coming in, uh, Sachin. You, I don't know if you want to comment on these. Uh, yeah. uh, some more there from Anne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She is referring to the uh, the, the the incident in Leela Charit that I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, no, it's uh, and from Christian. Yeah. Uh, so you want to have a look at that. Right. Yes, so I think we I, I was looking at Tulpule's book where he has not paid sufficient uh, emphasis on multiplicity of registers or even dialects, if you can use that term in middle in the old English is something that I think we should uh, be looking at uh, in uh, old Marathi itself. Mm -hmm. So any other any other questions now? We've got time for one more um, before we come to the end. Um, but um, perhaps I could ask a, a very quick one, uh, Sachin, um, yeah. and it's a very naive question. Um, right. Uh, uh, which is, um, you know, I, I'm sort of thinking like a, a pragmatic historian. Um, your models started out as literary models. Yeah. And then they became model, models, as it were, of sectarian exchange. Mm. And then they went back to being literary models again. Now, of course, as we all know, what is literary and what is religious is is um, an impossible question, a silly question to ask when literary genres are so very often the genres in which religious expression is, yeah. uh, in which we hear religious um, yeah. uh, expression. But I wonder, um, as as it were, primarily a literary person, how do you think about that? How do you uh -huh. think? That crossover, because undoubtedly, although although that interface is very kind of permeable, the religious and the literary, um, it, it is also, it seems to me, true that 
there is a specificity about religious and sectarian practice, just as there is a specificity about about literary practice. And I, w I wonder if you sort of how you think about that interface. That that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a very interesting question because even if we look at it as sectarian, it was definitely literary. Kavya was definitely uh, an idea that was being used right up to Tukaram, means who talks about Kavilak and even uh, uh, so Kavi being Kavi in Ramdas as well. And Kavita is a very important idea, even if we are looking at sectarian frames. Besides the selection of genres are often influenced by sectarian ideologies as Mancharkar has pointed out. For example, the use of prose uh, in Mahanubhava has something to do with the Dvaita philosophy. Uh, and the extensive use of Abhanga and Ovi as a performance uh, has something to do with their Dvaita, uh, Dvaita philosophy of Varkaris, uh, which mm -hmm. emphasize uh, Kavya as a kind of communion, Maharashtra, Maharashtra, uh, 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 that's the term Gnaneshwar uses. So there is a kind of uh, communion model in Varkari, which, which is not prominent, which is there, but not prominent genre in Mahanupavas. So sectarian ideologies have a very important uh, impact on, uh, on the selection of literary genre as well. So in using the, the term policy steam, how poetics is shaped by the institutional ideologies is something that I have uh, touched upon. And Mancharkar very interestingly contrast Rukmini Swayamvar uh, mm -hmm. in the Mahanubhava tradition and in Varkari tradition to show how their aesthetics and poetics differ because of their uh, metaphysical uh, ideologies. So I'm using the term ideology also in a very broad sense as uh, sure. some worldview, metaphysical worldview or Paramarthika worldview of Sampradaya. Uh, sure. Okay so then. Is, yeah. Thank you very much for um, uh, these many questions. There are, there are others in the list now. Of course, yeah. um, I'm sure um, our speakers would um, would be happy to um, hear from um, members of the audience who who want to yeah. uh, pursue these conversations. Yeah, um, Professor Sumit Guha has pointed out about Bhishmacharya's 16th century grammar. Yes. Uh, I, I will. That thanks a lot. I will definitely look that up. I was not aware of. That thanks, Professor Guha again. Great. We look up this, yeah. Okay, so thank you very much indeed. So yeah, much thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for having me. Uh, thanks for those wonderful questions. So now I'm going to hand over um, to Shraddha Kampochka, who is going to chair the second part of our session here. Shraddha, let me hand over to you.